it's usually the answer when people ask the people are like, oh, I've sketched this and something is wrong and I just don't know what it is. I feel like it's often that they were going for a more realistic sense of light and just don't know what to look for. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today, I'm speaking with New York-based artist and urban sketcher, Katie Woodward. Katie paints both really big surfaces and really small surfaces with nothing in between. (laughs) In this conversation, I'm curious to find out why. As a scenic painter for the theatre, Katie has painted enormous backdrops for many plays. And as I learn, her job wasn't limited to just the backdrops. She's also worked on creating props used for decoration and stage design, which needs the bringing together of diverse, valuable crafting skills. She tells me about these different things that go into stage design before we get to the subject of urban sketching. As an urban sketcher, Katie is known for her tiny paintings of New York cityscapes. What does it mean to draw at that scale? What can you do and what can you not do when you're drawing quickly and drawing small? I ask her about the experience of producing art of the most celebrated city in the world. We conclude our conversation by speaking about Katie's upcoming book, Understanding Light, for which she has brought together works and ideas from many of her favorite painters across different media. It sounds like a wonderful book, and I hope you will pre-order it and get yourself a copy. Today's episode is a short one, as long-time listeners of the show will have noticed, but I think you'll like it nonetheless. I learned many amazing things from Katie. I would like to thank the listeners who support my work every month on both platforms Buy Me A Coffee and Substack. Let me tell you a little bit about that. But first, a couple of months ago, I had said that I will keep thanking my supporters by name in every episode until they're too many for me to say in one breath. I forecast that the day that that happens would be both sad and extremely joyful. So with mixed feelings, but definitely more delighted than disappointed, I can announce that this episode I have reached that milestone. I can no longer name all my supporters in one breath. And believe me, I've tried more than a couple of times to do it. So instead of thanking them by name, let me tell you what they have made possible with their generous support. Thanks to my supporters, I'm able to keep on having these enriching conversations with artists and urban sketchers, do all the research around it, actually hold the conversation, edit afterwards, and bring together the episode in the form that you hear right now. So thank you, dear supporters, for making this episode and this podcast possible. I also want to take a little bit of your time to share a couple of new developments that I'm very excited about. The first is my email newsletter, The Sneaky Art Post. Earlier this month, I added a subscription model to this service. This means that in addition to my free newsletter, I'm also writing and recording more content exclusively for paying subscribers. My subscriber posts are both in text and audio formats, so you can even think of it as a second, more exclusive podcast. For example, I'm currently working on my second book of sneaky art. 
my supporters get a sneak peek into passages from that work with the text and the drawings as well as an audio narration. I'm also making bonus commentaries around my podcast conversations. Bonus commentaries are an opportunity to travel a little further along some of the more interesting tangents that come up while speaking with my guests. Subscribers also get the chance to ask me questions, suggest guests for future episodes, and pose questions for upcoming guests. Aside from all this, I have even more super ambitious plans for subscriber content in the next few weeks, and I'm quite excited to share that with them very soon. If these things interest you, head over to my Substack page and become a subscriber. You can also become a subscriber on my Buy Me A Coffee page and get these same benefits. The second development that I'm really excited about is the addition of a sneaky art Discord server. Discord is fast becoming my favorite place to join various communities around specific subjects. I decided to start a sneaky art Discord as an exclusive space for people who support me or have supported me at any point in the past. Here we can chat about podcast episodes, share our own art, and speak to and learn from one another. I will be hanging out on the Sneaky Art Discord server quite often, and so it is a great place to get in touch with me directly. If you're not a monthly subscriber, but would still like to avail the benefits of being on the Sneaky Art Discord, the cost of admission is just one cup of coffee. So tap the buy me a coffee button in the show notes of this episode to support my work, and I'll send you a link to join our little community. I'm very proud of the work that I've been able to do this past year with both the newsletter and the podcast. It gives me the confidence to take the next step in this independent creator journey, which is the subscription model. The philosopher Isaiah Berlin postulated that there are two types of freedom, positive and negative freedom. Simply described, positive freedom is the freedom to do certain things, and negative freedom is the freedom from certain constraints. The subscription model grants me both of these kinds of freedom, and that makes me very happy. Listener enthusiasm and feedback gives me the freedom to do exactly what I want on my own terms. And at the same time, the financial support I receive from my subscribers grants me freedom from accountability to faceless institutions and authority figures. I don't want to seek sponsors and I don't want to explain to any marketing department why my numbers are big enough for them to invest in me or why their brand should support me. Instead, this way my accountability is to the fans and supporters and listeners who enjoy my work and want to hear more of it. This is the promise of the creator economy and I'm happy to be part of this new world with you. Visit my Substack newsletter or my Buy Me A Coffee page using the links in the show notes and you can have more information on the subject. Let's begin today's episode. I start by asking Katie about the differences and also the similarities between working on huge theatrical backdrops several feet long and pieces of watercolor paper sometimes only two inches wide. Her answer is quite fascinating. Hello, Katie, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm so happy to speak to you. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm a listener, so I'm very excited to be here. Uh-huh. 
and i've been following uh, your work for a few years and of course we were i was going to meet you when uh, we didn't have the usk chicago seminar in 20, 2020 and that was going to be the time i'd i'd get to finally meet you but unfortunately that didn't happen um tell me how things are in new york how how are things with covid how have the last couple of years been for you um it's okay you know it our numbers are kind of high right now and the delta is definitely hitting us so i'm trying to avoid the subway more than not but i'll take it a couple of times a week and just mask up appropriately um i'm not doing any indoor dining even though that's a thing that we're technically allowed to do right now mm-hmm. um i am going to see a couple of the broadways opening back up again um but they're requiring everyone to be vaccinated or to have taken a pcr test within a day or two of going um and everyone has to wear masks so um we're we're getting by but it's definitely a little weird <laughs> is is going to the theater like something that's important to you like as an as part of the audience do you would you pre covid go often i do i actually i'm very lucky my sister doesn't work in theater but loves to see theater and so she will usually text me and say oh well, here are the shows that i want to see what do you want to see with me and then she does all of the ticket finding and um i just can reimburse her for my ticket and can just go and enjoy the show so it's nice cuz she does all the leg work for me so shout out to hillary for being my ticket ninja oh that's lovely it's great to have a ticket ninja that's that's a great term for it and that's exactly the skill set you require to get a good ticket yeah. um <laughs> Uh, tell uh, th- tell me a little bit about how it's been like these last couple of years how has work been affected for you how have things changed uh, and how, what have you been how have you been kind of pivoting around it yeah um well it was definitely strange to go from mostly sketching outside and doing urban sketches to mostly painting inside from photos that i've taken luckily i'm an obsessive photo taker when i travel so i have a very large catalog of photos to work from uh-huh. but it was definitely odd spending so much time in my apartment after mostly not spending that much time in my apartment so it's lucky that i like my ha- my apartment and where i live um but that was sort of the main pivot that had to happen for me. I had already not been working in theater for a almost a year at that point. So at least I wasn't affected at all when everything shut down and there was suddenly no more theater work like so many of my friends were. Mhm. So that was something that I got to skip and I just went from working outside to working inside. <laughs> interesting uh, i remember uh, during the early days of covid like maybe we can think of it as like the first phase of covid in our lives you were doing a lot of uh, instagram live sessions w- was that something uh, you- you're used to doing was that something that you enjoyed doing w- was it fun for you to do that it was fun for me to do that i've been wanting to do that more now that i actually have a studio set up in my apartment that will make it easier for me to do that but it was a fun way to connect with other people in a time when i was mostly sitting alone in my apartment <laughs> painting things um and obviously when you're out urban sketching people come up and talk to you when you're getting human interaction when you're out sketching on the street but that doesn't really happen when i'm painting Yeah. In my house. D- does that change uh, how, in what ways does it change things? Does it change the kind of joy you get from the experience also? 
Um, I definitely enjoy it when I'm out and people come up to me for the most part. Sometimes people are weird, but for the most part, I have overwhelmingly pleasant experiences with people who come up and talk to me while I'm painting. Um, but yeah, I definitely missed seeing people and having people come up to me while I work. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I know your, I knew your work from only Instagram at first. So for me, you were this person who paints on very tiny pieces of paper and some of them are landscape. Some of them are tall, but, uh, the, the, the standard feature was that they're really small, but then I looked at your website and you uh, explicitly talk about, about this fact that you also paint huge theater backdrops. And that was super fascinating to me. So you've done really large paintings and then you do these really small paintings. Now, one of the fun things I get to do on my podcast is that I get to jump into any kind of question I like because it's my conversation. So I like to jump into (laughs) some questions sometimes. And I'm going to do that here without doing a preamble about your work. And maybe we'll go into that a little afterwards. But what are some things that don't change even when you change the size of your canvas, like from multiple feet in in dimension to the few inches that you sometimes work in. So what are some things that don't change with size? Having to think about the process and the steps that you're going to do something in is definitely something that stays the same throughout, even though obviously when you're working huge, you may um, be a little bit more invested in the process because if you if it goes wrong, it's going to be a much literally a much bigger deal than when you're working on a little postage stamp sized thing where if it doesn't work out, you can toss it and pretend it never happened. Um, But for the most part, just having to think through the steps that you're going to do something to make it happen. And I think with theatrical painting specifically, because often you're painting something that's going to be seen by someone 30 feet away or more, um, but that's usually kind of the the basic distance that you're considering is about 30 feet. And what's funny is when you work really tiny, it's almost like you're doing the same thing in scale because when you're viewing it from a couple feet away or a foot away, however far away you're working on it, that's the optimum distance for it to be viewed by. And so you tend to cater to kind of a a similar audience. It's almost like you're seeing something really large just far away. Yeah, that's actually a really great point. And of course, 30 feet away is the the most, uh, like the, the front row tickets. And most of the audience is even more dozens of feet behind that. So for them, in effect, they're seeing your your backdrop at the same size as those little paintings if they held them in their hands or if they saw it on their phones. That's such a that's such a great point. Um, tell me a little bit about about this work. So you said theatrical painting, and I'm good. I'm happy to know that that's that's a term for it. Um, how did you how did you fall into doing this? Was this something? Was it was it like a, an interest from when you were very young? How how did you get into art, and how did that lead towards theatrical painting and the kind of stage design that you do? I was at a very young age, very interested in crafts and coloring and painting and anything that involved making stuff. And when I was in middle school, my I was lucky and my school had a drama club. So when I was about 12, I joined the tech crew 
and we were making props and scenery and costumes and there was a group that was doing lighting and doing all of those things and it was just something that I kept up with through school until I graduated and somewhere along the way I realized oh wait there's people who do this professionally for a living and so when it came time to apply to colleges I had applied primarily for theater programs and I got in and went to Ithaca College for theatrical production arts with a concentration in scenic design. So it was kind of a very direct route of just being interested in making stuff and finding an outlet that would let me make cool things. Uh-huh. Um, what what were some of these early plays that you did, for example, in, in your school days? What kind of things did you make? Um, let's see. I did King and I, The King and I twice because we managed to do it both in middle school and in high school. So I did th- that twice in three years, which was a lot. Um, for the second time, I had painted a wall that was going to be Anna's like bedroom wall that had just a lot of filigree and fun stuff on it. And I mostly only did that for that particular show. I've gotten a little faster since then. Um, let's see, what else did I do? There was a lot of painting things. We did a funny thing happened on the way to the forum sophomore year and that we used a lot of texture on. So we would put on this really thick texture and then comb it off in different patterns So a lot of that sort of thing. Painting and prop making were always the things that I was most interested in. So I usually found myself working on, those would be the things that I would be working on more rather than building platforms and that type of thing. We also did The Sound of Music and I did a summer production of West Side Story in there in South Pacific, some classics, you know. Susical, we did. That was my senior year one. And Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I think that those were most of what I did before graduating high school. All right. And what were what were some some unique challenges to these? Now, there's the basic idea of painting a backdrop and making some props. But is there something that sticks out that that really sparked your like sparked a lot of joy for you? Something that told you that this is something like maybe maybe something that was really difficult, but you enjoyed finishing it and having done it? Um, All of it, honestly. Um, But in junior and senior year, I got some opportunities to design some things as well for both Joseph and for Susical. I really, I designed most of the set we did for Susical. So that was really fun to me, just being able to kind of make all of those big decisions, which ended up being funny since that ended up not being at all what I was interested in doing professionally. I wanted to only do the maker part of it and none of the design part of it. Right. And uh, on Instagram, we see mainly the the paintings. But this the the prop work is interesting in itself to me. And I, I'm just curious to know, like, what are some of these skills that go into into doing this kind of work what are some like maybe you can tell me a little bit about the kind of courses you had in university or the kind of uh, little little skills and techniques and talents that you picked up what what kind of what it, it seems like such a diverse array of artistic practices that you need in order to do this this job that gets defined by one title it's almost unfair yeah 
It's so much working on the fly that it was even, I would say, less coursework and more just being working at theaters where, oh, look, we need a fake polar bear head. You're going to make a fake polar bear head today, um, which is something that I actually did have to do for a show. Um, So just kind of having to make things up on the fly happens and working on shows where they say, oh, we need someone to sculpt this. Do you have any sculpture, you know, work in your repertoire? And you might say, oh, well, I have this one thing and it was really small, but I guess I know how to do this vaguely. And they'll say, great, that still means you have more experience than everyone else on the team right now. So you're going to go and do this, whether or not it's something that you've done before. So just rolling with the punches and having to figure it out on the fly is how I learned a lot of things. I did come in with a decent amount of maker knowledge to begin with, just from doing it in high school. And then through college, you pick things up. But I was also put into sewing classes as a child. So I knew how to sew. And you end up getting people who hire you as a painter, and they don't know that you know other things. And then you're kind of like, oh, well, I know how to do this? And they're like, great, I have this other project for you now. Um, So you learn, you know, maybe how to upholster on a day that you've never upholstered a day in your life, but you're the person who they have available. So you're going to figure it out. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a lot of figuring it out. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go deeper into this. So you do answer my question. Uh, I'm fascinated by the idea of making a polar bear head. Can you tell me exactly how you make a fake polar bear head and give me all the details? I really want to know. I can. And I actually do have photographic evidence of the entire journey of this. So we can maybe do like an Instagram share on the day that this is released. Um, so I started with some pink insulation styrofoam and I carved the top and the bottom of the head separately. And we ordered, I did this in about a week, just so we're clear, that's the time frame that we're talking about. And I found online, there's an Etsy store where someone sells castings of jaws of different animals. So you can get a plastic jaw of a, she had grizzly bear rather than polar bear, but it was like close enough. It's great. So I got to avoid having to make any teeth separately. So that was, got first day, ordered the teeth, had to wait for them to arrive, but that came in two pieces. So because I had sculpted the head out of styrofoam in two pieces, I was then able to attach each piece separately, paint the interior of the mouth with the pieces separately before putting them together, but it was a lot of sculpting the shape of the actual head and going against photo references that I had. And then we were making a bearskin rug. I was not responsible for the rug portion. I was just responsible for the head portion, Mm -hmm. but they had gotten a polar bear-esque sheepskin rug where all of the hair had been straightened. So it looks more like a bear And they cut that into more of a bear shape. And I then had to use the scraps from the rug to upholster the polar bear head that I made and then give it a haircut down so it made sense where they're, you know, by their snouts a little bit closer and then it gets longer as you get away from the head. So I was part barber, 
but I had to figure out how to use the scraps that I had to upholster the head. So that required some patterning where I did it first in like brown craft paper. And then I tried it with some scrap vinyl that we had to make sure that the pieces were really good because once I cut the fur, that's it. Those are the pieces that I have. And so I wanted to make sure that that was good before I made choices. And we got some taxidermy eyes. So that was how we figured out the eye portion. The snout that was the nose that wasn't covered in the fur I had done by, I sculpted it really nicely and painted it. And I painted the lips and the part around the mouth as well. And then I painted some of the fur to make it look a little bit more realistic because you're not going to have a polar bear with just pure white hair all around its face. So I used some photo references to figure that out. And then one of the other team members attached my polar bear head, who I named Bernard, because when you're staring at a bear for a week, you you name it. You want to get on friendly terms. Yeah, we were super friendly. Um, And the entire crew got very attached to Bernard because it was a lot of me sitting up in the shop and going through this. So people would come in and be like, oh, how's how's Bernard doing (laughs) Um, throughout? But another team member attached him to the rest of the rug and attached the ears. They made some ears for him as well. that got put on so and it and it made it into the final production which was great because there was a there was a minute there in technical rehearsals where I had I was a day or two into the process and my boss comes up and is like don't freak out but I had made them a rehearsal head to go so that they had something to block around and blocking is just you know doing all of the walking and all of that around it um So they had the rehearsal head and she comes up and is like, don't freak out, but they're a little scared of the rehearsal head and they might cut this entirely, keep working on it because they also might decide that it's fine. But no, as you're working on this and putting all of this hard work into this completely ridiculous thing that you're doing, that all of this might just get trashed and that it's not going to be used. But luckily right. it made it in. I was very excited for Bernard. And and this was something that was uh, an, an important part of the set because it was on the floor, right? It was on the floor and it was pretty center stage. So I can see why them having a big stuffed rehearsal head on the floor for the first time would throw them as something that you have to walk around and not trip over and not kick yeah, yeah, such a good point. And now now that you mentioned that they considered not having it, I'm thinking of how much effort you put into so many things that perhaps don't get used, or maybe they're used, but they're just on set for like on the stage for a few minutes. D- does that happen a lot? All the time. So often I did this. It was another really strange multi- hyphenate project where I had to be sculpting and painting and doing fabric work and all of this stuff. I did a Mother Russia statue for Anastasia. And I, again, a project that I spent maybe five days on, maybe a full week. And it's on stage for maybe two minutes. (laughs) And then it's gone. They did, they used it in some of the advertising materials. So they at least, you know, got some more of their money's worth out of it. But that happens all the time or you spend weeks working on a backdrop that's then only in for the one musical number and then it flies away never to be seen again. 
yeah yeah uh, so, uh, uh how how do how do you do the how do you do the statues you said the mother russia statue that's off the the woman who's got her arms uh, waving her arms and uh, like it's it's the really big statue that exists in russia right um this one was more a figment of our imagination the designer gave me some reference images of a few different statues um cuz he wanted her to have kind of a scarf blowing out behind her and some other things so and i was working from an existing naked athena statue from another show that was completely separate from this so i already had the base of a person to work from and then i just had to use my artist brain to figure out how to make it look like anything like the research images that he gave me so it wasn't so much from a specific statue but just the idea of a mother russia statue mm-hmm. um sorry i think i maybe went off on a tangent did that answer the question <laughs> tangents are lovely i like tangents so we can we can go on into any tangents that occur to you um but i'm just thinking about these these skills again and so the artist brain like you said and a lot of work is of course only it's only been the last maybe 6 maybe maybe less years that you can literally find anything on youtube anything you want to do you youtube it and you find a quick tutorial to learn how to do it and the best tools to do the job with and you don't have to spend so much time thinking about what materials do i want how much might i want it what will work what will not work you can just adopt the best practices put out for you by one or the other youtuber So how does it go in the absence of that I'm assuming you did a lot of work without having access to these these tools I've actually never made something by looking up on YouTube I think I've skipped that because once you know enough people in theater you have and it's a very small community and it's really easy to build your network of people and once you have your network you just text some friends where you're like oh I think you did something like this in the past what did you do and so it's a lot of everyone just texting each other to find that information and I've certainly had people text me and say oh hey that polar bear head that you made how did you do that because I have a project that's similar and so it's a lot of feeding off of each other's knowledge more so than doing as much googling. I've definitely done some googling before. I've never YouTubed how to do something, but often our projects are kind of so specific and out of the box that I think it would be harder to look for exactly what I need on YouTube. Um cuz sometimes you're doing something that has all of these theater tricks that need to happen where it's like okay so the cake has lights that need to light up and get blown out and then it needs to get tipped on its side and they need to stab it through with a sword again real life example of something that I have made wow <laughs> um so it's hard to sometimes get all of those things with just something on YouTube because where would you need that where would yeah. you ever need that <laughs> right <laughs> except right. for pirates of penzance apparently yeah uh, you're the one who's supposed to start that youtube channel <laughs> <laughs> apparently yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so well what i'm trying to get at is then that does every prop artist and uh, designer in this space do they all have their own set of ways and set of tools and materials that they prefer are there any best practices at all that you can refer to or is everybody just sort of you know basing it on their own experience and the things they've done before um 
I would say it's a lot like urban sketching where people tend to have their own way that they like to do things. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a right or a wrong way to do things, but people Mm -hmm. definitely have their own way and sometimes have very strong opinions on what they think is the right way and the wrong way to do things. But that doesn't mean that there's an overarching concept or a worldwide idea of what's best and what's worst (laughs) right yeah yeah that's that's a great point um so now i'm thinking uh, again going back to painting i'm thinking of the backdrops now they're large so they have to be they're they're detailed and you work with uh, all kinds of materials What, what are some what are some interesting factors so this thing that you mentioned the fact that it's going to be viewed by at least 30 to 40 feet away and then further on that's one factor i'm thinking the lights that are on it or not on it that's also part of part of recreating that backdrop recreating the 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 set so what are some of these things that you have to think about and how how do you incorporate them like it doesn't seem like just a standard job of painting it for a neutral light every time um usually more often than not you actually do paint for a neutral light just because often it's going to have to be in multiple light situations or um the lighting designer hasn't necessarily decided exactly what that cue is going to be. So more often than not, you're just taking the scenic designer is responsible for figuring out what everything wants to look like. So you're going to get a scale rendering of what it wants to look like that's small, and then you have to make it bigger. Um, And sometimes lighting will be incorporated in the sense that they might say, oh, this wants to be really flashy, so we're going to have you put glitter on it in these places. But a lot of that is are things that I'm not making those choices. They're handed to me as things that I need to do to finish the drop. Um, so I forgot the question. I'm really good at this. <laughs> okay, let me, let me remix the question Sorry. a little bit. Yeah. Let's say you're doing a play that's quite popular and... Uh, you have to do Venice or something like that as the backdrop. Is there a, so for every play, is there already a standard image that you know you're going to work with? How how do you arrive even like, what are these different things that you bring together before you get down with your materials and you begin? What are some things that you collect? How do you bring your reference images together? Where do you gather them from? What are some resources? So that was not my job. So the scenic designer is responsible for that. And I was primarily a scenic painter. So the scenic designer just gives me, does all of the research, puts all of the stuff together, talks to the director, talks to the rest of the design team. They figure everything out, what it wants to look like. And then when they figure out what they want it to look like, they give a whole packet of information to team scenery, draftings to the carpenters and renderings to the painters and then the carpenters build the things and the painters make them look like the tiny versions that we've been given by the scenic designer. So I was luckily never responsible for figuring out what something specifically had to look like, except in the situations that you're sometimes in where the scenic designer has not necessarily given you all of the information that you need and you need to make some artistic choices along the way, just based on the information that you've been given. Um, So luckily that was something that I never had to do. But then where I would come in is you have to figure out how are we making this thing happen in the amount of time that we have with the people that we have 
So then you have to do some samples where you paint things small before painting them big to make sure, okay, this is how we're going to do the wood grain for this. This is how we're going to do the marble. Um, and just figuring out step by step what everything is going to look like before you do it to make sure that you have the time and the materials available to you. So it's a lot of facilitating before you yeah. actually even get into the painting. Right. And uh, what kind of materials are these typically that you that you end up working with? Um, there are lines of specific scenic paint that is like house paint, but it is higher a higher pigment content. So it looks better under stage lights. Um, and there's Roscoe off-Broadway that is like a house paint. And then there's Roscoe super saturated paint, which is kind of thicker, a little paste-like that's meant to be watered down and used on drops and was originally formulated as a replacement for aniline dye, which is highly toxic, though is still occasionally used. Um, but more often than not, people use super sat now for, for things like that. Um, and then just sometimes stuff that wasn't meant to ever be used in theater. So there's elastometric roofing materials that are flexible. They're like rubber when they're dry. So sometimes you use those for mix stuff in and add texture to it because it's not going to chip off. So you can sometimes have that as a floor covering with people walking on it and that type of thing, though it's not at all what the makers of that material had thought was going to be happening with it when they formulated it. It was something for roofing and it's now been used for many years for scenic work. So it's a bit of some stuff made specifically for theater and then other times figuring out, okay, I need a material that fits all of these requirements and then finding that material and using it, whether or not it's something that was meant to be used for theater or not. Mm -hmm. um, and now, as I as I remember, as I recall, you said that you you're not you left theater work a little bit before the pandemic. Is that correct? I did July 2019. I had decided to leave. And and what are you doing since then? What's what's been the game plan? just watercolors and I have my second side business with my dad doing um, sketchboards and watercolor palettes for urban sketchers. So I've been doing mostly just those two things, um, which is a nice change because there was a while there where I was doing selling my artwork, doing the second store Woodward and Father with dad and teaching scenic painting to undergrad students and freelancing in theater with and four careers is too many I can objectively <laughs> say four careers was too many yeah. so it's nice to just be down to the two right present. yeah yeah I, I agree four does sound like a little bit too much maybe yeah. I can't so, recommend uh, it <laughs> <laughs> now you've in in your work in your training in the you know you you've worked with pictures so much you've worked with all kinds of reference images of not only uh, real uh, locations but also reference images of paintings themselves that you've recreated again so how did this interest now we're coming to urban sketching so i i'm curious to know how the interest in urban sketching came in and when when was it was it much much before all of these things or how did it happen that you came to be interested in it um, it was kind of a slow burn with me and urban sketching. The first time I got a little taste of it, I was in 
Italy on spring break with my college roommate who I was living with at the time. And we were going to be stuck in Dolo outside of Venice because they were doing a town parade and we weren't going to be able to get into Venice proper. And she's an artist too. So we just said, hey, let's spend the morning out sketching the town rather than going in. And I always really liked that experience and enjoyed it and remembered it years down the line, even though I, I was 20 years old when that happened. And I don't think that I did any urban sketching again until I was maybe 24. And it was just something that I was always interested in. But during college, I was so busy using all of my artistic you know, energy and knowledge for theater. And I didn't necessarily want to paint more things when I came home. So it wasn't until I had graduated and was working more regularly nine to five in theater work and then having actual evenings not dedicated not dedicated to homework that I could then do more watercolors. So I had picked up working from photos and I had always remembered that day in Italy sketching and I had started doing a little bit of it here and there on summer theater places I would go and maybe we have a day off and we go to the lake and oh I can bring my watercolors with me and I slowly started to find on the internet that this was a thing that other people were doing I think on Pinterest I originally had just started finding all of these urban sketchers and realized that oh there's a whole blog of this. And then at that point I was living in New York and I said, oh, if there's chapters all around the world, there must be a New York chapter. And spoiler alert, there is a New York chapter and it's very active and very friendly and delightful. And so I had started meeting up with their group and that was, I had already been doing a little bit of painting around town at that point, but I got a lot more invested quickly just because there's so many people here that I can meet up with to go and sketch. Yeah, yeah, true. And so you're doing this when you're when you're working in theater nine to five. And I would think that's already such a heavy investment of your creative artistic energy um, that it's it's commendable that you still have some left to give to urban sketching afterwards. But again, uh, one one side, of course, is that New York is that kind of place. It inspires. It has inspired so much great art already in so many forms of media that it's no surprise that it would do that for you. Um, was then the, the choice of working so small, was it almost like to contrast it from what you're doing during the day? It was nice for variety because sometimes you're working on, you know, just these huge things for theater and it's nice to have something at the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And it it's, I guess it's more sustainable also if it doesn't demand an hour or a couple of hours of your time, if you can do something quickly in a little bit of time at a location. It is nice. It's great when you only have, you know, seven minutes before you have to catch a train and you can go, I can paint something an inch wide in seven minutes mm -hmm. in a way that you really can't if you're doing something larger and it takes less time to set up. It takes less time to do much more. You can easily fit it into any bag that you have the materials that you need for that rather than having to, you know, be prepared for a full watercolor sheet or something that requires more of an easel setup. Just, it's nice to be able to just pull it out, do it quickly, and then go about your day. It's perfect for when a friend is running late for lunch and you find you have, you know, 20 minutes that you didn't know you'd have. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things you said there, like, firstly, 
that you can carry the materials around so much more easily if it if it's small so that means you end up carrying it to more places so you always you can always quote unquote always have it with you and the second is that like this is something that i think about with respect to my art uh, so i'm drawing with just a fountain pen and a little sketchbook so the i i think exactly this that i have an incentive to always have it on me because it's so little it's just two little items they can go in my jacket and the the first thing you mentioned which is another really important factor that now so many things become uh, objects of art that wouldn't occur to you if you were only thinking of 35 i mean 30 45 or 60 minute sessions so in if you're willing to paint in 7 minutes or 10 minutes or just while you're waiting for somebody to arrive or something to happen there are so many subjects you're opening yourself up to that you wouldn't otherwise be receptive to painting in my case drawing yeah definitely true yeah so do you uh, so d- does this time factor mean that you find yourself are there any specific things you can think that you wouldn't have otherwise painted if you were there for longer periods of time that you sort of snatched out you know from your day you snatched a bit of art out of your day the subjects are pre- are usually about the same for me i'm usually attracted to the same stuff whether i'm painting it bigger or smaller i like the more architectural views just how i paint them is going to be a little bit different mm-hmm. um with the time though i was into subway sketching for a while and so that was something where i would make sure to sketch the thing that i originally saw on the person that was why i wanted to sketch them first because otherwise they will inevitably get off at the next stop and i will never get to sketch the fun glasses that they were wearing or their great shoes um so making good choices in terms of what you think is going to be around for the 2 minutes that you're going to be painting or sketching i would usually do that in graphite Yeah and that sounds like a good way to also to learn to trust your intuition if you just leap at something that appeals to you and you don't waste time hesitating. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to keep in mind too even for longer works because I feel like it's so easy to get drawn in when you look at a scene and go Oh, that red awning is really great, but then you end up making the red awning really really small and you sketch all of these other things that weren't the first thing that you really wanted to do and it's always really dissatisfying when you end up spending all of this time on a sketch and you go, "Oh, that wasn't even the thing that I was interested in doing and why I sat down." Maybe I'm the only one, but I've definitely have done this before. <laughs> <laughs> Um so I think that that's a good thing to keep in mind no matter what size you're working at to always look first for the thing that you're most interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great lesson irrespective of size, irrespective of the time commitment that like this is something that I do. I always go to the most interesting thing first. I make it my subject and then I sort of spiral outwards from it and because I'm drawing in limited time spiraling outwards means that the further away i get from the most interesting thing the less attention i'm able to give it the less details i'm able to give it and so uh it it makes for a different kind of focus in my art that i enjoy i just spoke to uh felix scheinberger a couple of weeks ago and we were also talking about this he mentioned that for him the most difficult thing is what he does first and although he draws a lot of people and i'm surprised he said this he said that drawing people is the most difficult thing for him and so he dives into that first sort of like like 
conquering the page in a sense or overcoming fears. So when when you're out painting on location and you work so much with reference images, it's a very different experience to be at a place and then to paint from what you see in front of you. Are there any any challenges or things that intimidate you about it that, you know, it's almost fun to get o- to overcome those intimidations and to do it anyway, almost in a defiant way. Uh, are there any things that, that challenge you in this way when you're on location? Um, when I first started drawing on location, there was a very big learning curve, even as someone who has spent so much time painting and making art but when you're copying from something that already exists where all of the choices are made it's a very different experience than when you put yourself out in the world and you have a 360 view and can do anything you want picking first what you want to do because usually if you're as a scenic you're just given what you're painting and that's what you're painting and you don't have a choice but here choosing both your subject and how you want to paint it. And as someone who spent a lot of time painting in hundreds of other styles, any style under the sun and copying all of these other paintings and works, then figuring out when I'm left to my own devices, how I want to paint was a very big learning curve and making those choices. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about this. Like, what was it like? Like, how did, how do you make that? Because you, like you mentioned, you have this encyclopedia of art that you've done based on art that has already existed. So what is that, what is it like to try to bring out your own voice? Um, It was a quick, quickly, I kind of figured out that just because you like looking at someone's art doesn't mean that you like the process that they went through to make it. So sort of very quickly prioritizing, this is a process that I enjoy. And this is how I'm going to do that, even if it's not necessarily, you know, my favorite art to look at. It's a process that I enjoy doing. So kind of getting that hook in made it easier for me to then free myself from having to make the art look like something and just figure out how I how I want to make art and how is fun for me to make art <laughs> rather than worrying so much about what it looked like. And then what my art looks like now sort of followed that experience of me just deciding the process I wanted to use and how I like working and then how it looks just followed rather than doing it in reverse where I'm like, okay, I want it to look this way. How do I get it to look this way? Cause I found out that there were then some processes that were just not fun for me. And if I don't like the process of doing it, then why would I do it that way? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a point that really needs to be reinforced that people paint the way they paint because not for not because it's going to look like something that they needed to necessarily look like but because that's the process that they enjoy doing it in and that that sometimes changes the way you put your strokes down but also the the sort of the sort of materials you use whether you go in terms of watercolor whether you go pencil first whether you don't do pencils at all whether you go in just with colors all of that is stylistic choices in the end but it begins with what is fun or what gives you joy. Exactly, yeah. Right. So you're living in New York and it's 
one of the most it's probably the most photographed city in the world it's probably the most uh like celebrated city in terms of film and there's been so much media about it every like even if people haven't gone to new york they already have so many images of new york in their mind from from everywhere so when you're going around new york now how do you is 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 that is that does that cause friction of some kind like how 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 does it matter what you're painting um i don't know that that causes friction for me i always like seeing my city as it's depicted in things even when it's not necessarily depicted accurately i love playing the game of that's not where in new york you said it is um cuz they frequently film at different places and then they say that it's somewhere else um so i don't know i just i don't let it bother me i tend to really go for the iconic highly photographed locations and like the Flatiron building and the Brooklyn Bridge I find them really fun to paint and I like painting things that look like you know old-timey postcards and I've gotten the feedback a lot that my work does look like old New York in a way that's a little bit more old-fashioned which I take as a compliment um but I don't really feel any friction or like it's just not something that I think about really I just I live here and it's my home and I love it yeah yeah i i'm still thinking about uh, the contrast between pictures and reality um so uh, a little while ago i spoke with ian fanelly and we were talking about how uh, during the pandemic he was compelled to also draw indoors and so he was drawing from photographs and uh, he observed that his style didn't change he was able to maintain the same look so if you looked at his work uh which is on location and you look at his work which is drawn from references you couldn't really tell which is which his nothing about the work itself has changed but uh, we were talking about the advantage again uh, why he thought and i agree it's much easier to be on location and you mentioned that right now in a sense the the choices you're confronted with when you're on location you have this 360 view how you pick something that's interesting so Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about this, like contrasting with uh, very fixed photos, to be on location, to move around, to look at things. Have you been able to think about what kind of things interest you? Why you pick one point of view over another? Um, it's generally the subject that draws me in. So I do a lot of those iconic views, and a lot of storefronts are always fun for me. So that's usually what I'm looking at. I think that the main difference for me with doing something in person versus doing it from a photograph is just reminding myself in the photograph to not get drawn in to the things that would be moving in reality that are not in the photograph, like the people and the taxis and things that I might do a little bit looser because they're moving in a sketch that I do outside, but then in the photograph they're they're stuck there and you can see them as clearly as you can see any of the architecture um and so just reminding myself that 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 they would be moving in reality um though it's nice in the photograph that the light never moves that you don't have to worry about a cloud coming and getting in your way and you know that light that you sat down for is no longer there 5 seconds in because the sun has changed um or clouds have gotten in the way. Yeah, yeah, such a good point. Like I uh, we're going to we're going to come to light as well because that's such an important factor in colors especially. And 
because I don't work in colors, that's not so much of a challenge for me. So I want to kind of uh, dwell on this for a little bit. So like you you mentioned, and I didn't know about this, that you drew on the, in the subway with uh, graphite. So you were doing some, it, it could be said of graphite as light and shadow, as volumes, but also lines. Like it's also shapes and borders and lines. And watercolors are not uh, borders and lines. Watercolors are surfaces and volumes and light and shadow and colors. So this contrast between the two. Now, since you've done both of these, I feel like maybe you can answer it for me. Uh, otherwise, it was going to be me holding up the the edge for the lines. Is how how does it change how you see things? So when when you're outside and you're seeing things with respect to line work, if you if I gave you a pencil or a pen to draw with, as opposed to a brush, how does how does that change what you look at? How does that change how you depict it and bring it onto your paper? That's a good question. I don't know that you're going to like my answer, though. Um, (laughs) So I feel like I usually see things the same way, no matter the material, the medium that I'm using. So even when I'm working in watercolor, I almost always do a graphite drawing underneath first. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm always seeing things in terms of shape and light. And I very rarely am not shading things. So even when I was sketching people on the subway everyone has shading there's like you can see the shadows if they're you know if someone is sleeping up against the mirrored wall of the subway you can see their reflection in the mirror just because that's what I find interesting I really enjoy light and so that's something that I'm drawn to so I very rarely would do just a line drawing without any shading or any light depicted at all just because it's what I like so yeah yeah. So uh, thinking of color then, uh, you're in the city, you've got buildings, you've got uh, nature and these colors contrasting with each other. Um, I'm I'm also thinking about how different materials mean that the way you put down the color changes. So when you're working with watercolors, the way you're able to put down the colors, because you can only go from light to dark, you can't go the other direction. And of course, if you're working with uh, other paints and Harder paints, you can just do anything you want on top of anything else, and it doesn't matter. the The job, the the blending of the colors is not that not that way on the surface. The way it is with watercolors. So, do you do you feel this difference in how you have to then break down what you're looking at if you're working with watercolors versus working with some other kinds of paints? So, this is something where having the theater background has actually been really really helpful because. With theater work, sometimes you are working in very much a watercolor kind of sensibility where you're doing layers that are going to be transparent, where you're going to see through each layer to below. Like if you're doing, you know, wood grain, you're going to start with maybe a yellow base and then just do layers of different browns and grains until it looks like what you want it to look like in the end. And that's very similar to how watercolor works. So... Mm -hmm. um, having worked as a scenic where you're sometimes doing that and then sometimes working in other materials where you are working more opaque means that I feel pretty confident in picking up, you know, gouache and other and acrylic paints and then being able to step right into them because for years that, that was what I was doing as a scenic where maybe one day you're working in something that's more watercolor and then the next day you're doing something that's more opaque. So just having to have the flexibility for years has made it easy for me to swap. 
Um, but no matter whether it's opaque or transparent, it's something where I'm always thinking about the process of how I'm going to get from point A to point B and how all of my edges are going to line up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so like, uh, I'm thinking in terms of the things that I like to draw when I go outdoors to draw and when I, and off late over the last two or three weeks, I've been thinking about, and I've been doing dabbling a little bit with watercolors again. I sort of used to do it until 2018 and then I gave it up because I just didn't want to spend so much more time doing that kind of thing. And I enjoyed line work so much more, but I've been doing it again. And now I've been thinking about how it's changing what I look at and the things that, you know, like we're talking about what gives us joy when we're drawing or painting and sticking to those things. And that often determines the things we do paint and the things we don't. So even in the scene, we're looking at the, the, the items we don't want to include. We don't care to include. And then of course, when you're picking a subject, you don't include a subject, which is something that you don't want to depict. And for me, for the longest time, despite uh, drawing so much in Chicago, it's skyscrapers. I don't enjoy drawing skyscrapers because I don't enjoy drawing all those windows and putting things in parallel and putting things in pers obeying perspective lines. And it's just very tedious for me to do. And I was thinking that it's tedious for me. And this thought came to me when I started dabbling in watercolors again, is that it's tedious because I'm trying to work in lines and I have to, a line is like a pen is basically a dot. And I stretch it and it becomes a line and I stretch it around and I make shapes out of those lines. But a brush has its own shape and you can pull it and then you don't get a line, you get volume, you get, you get like an, an area of paint. And that changes how I look at buildings now. Suddenly buildings are a lot easier if I can just do it in one stroke or two. And I don't have to think about how my line is going to go up and how it's going to go the other side and how it's going to come down. There is a certain degree of finesse that just using a brush gives my work that would have been so much more difficult to do with lines. So that's sort of the, the difference that I see between watercolors and lines. And then with watercolor itself, I think about now that I'm looking at what I'm, what I'm looking at, I can't just bring, I can't, like, I see this color here on the building and then the windows are shaded a certain way. I can't just pick that color from my palette and put it here and then pick the other color and put it there. I have to think about how I'll build up to this level, this, this color, how I'm going to layer those things in. So that's kind of the difference I meant between, say, watercolors and working with acrylics on a canvas that you don't have this luxury of just getting that color right on your palette and then putting it on the canvas. And that's what it's like. You have to sort of layer up to it. Does uh, So I guess uh, what I want to know is how that goes for you, because I want to ask you about uh, light and shadow. So how, how do you think about these things? Like when you're painting something and it's a cloudy day versus when you're painting something and it's a well-lit day. So things change in these little subtle ways. How, how important has this been for you when you're trying to paint depicting this difference um it's pretty important i try i usually try to do what's in front of me but sometimes it's nice to be able to go i just want this to be a sunny sketch even though it's not a sunny day so then knowing just from years of observing how light behaves being able to add in your shadows um but kind of having a good idea of how things are going to look under sunlight and where if the sun 
were out, where the sun would be coming from, and where all of those shadows would be, um, has been great. But also being able to say, okay, today is cloudy and I'm going to go with it and everything is going to be flat, no shadows, and that's where it, where it's at for me today um, are both equally valid and I enjoy both of those. But it's always something that I've looked for whenever I'm – both when I'm painting and just when I'm out in the world, even as a child, I always would like look at the lighting on things and then in college, I did take lighting design. So <laughs> um, it's always been something that's been kind of in my headspace, just as an observer of the world. Right, right. So you've just uh, put out this book, Understanding Light. Um, tell me a little bit about it. Like, what, what's the book about? What, what, how did you go about bringing it together? Uh, the book is very much about learning how to observe light. And my hope is that it's going to help people learn to observe light in the same way that we observe objects in our surroundings. So it's like if you're painting a street scene and there's a food truck on the street, but you don't see it. If you don't see the food truck, the food truck is not making it into your sketch, right? So if you're someone who hasn't spent a lot of time observing lighting, but want to include it more in your work this would be a book for you because this is, I wanted to make it more obvious what you should be looking for if you want to depict art. So there's observation checklists in each section that can kind of give you a, an idea of what you should be looking for if you want to observe light more. Because I feel like it's the thing that people most often, it's usually the answer when people ask the People are like, oh, I've sketched this and something is wrong and I just don't know what it is. I feel like it's often that they were going for a more realistic sense of light and just don't know what to look for. So that was very much the way that I approached the book. Um, and also wanting to show lighting being depicted in a lot of different mediums because I feel like I think you even said something similar to this before where often with watercolor people are depicting the light but I wanted to show that you can with graphite and with acrylic and gouache and pen and ink and it's a very and marker there's marker in the book too so I wanted to make sure that there was a very wide variety of styles of sketches and mediums being used to show that anybody can. It's not something that's limited by the medium that you're using. It's just how you're observing your surroundings. Um, so I came at it from very much that perspective and I'm very pleased with how it turned out and I'm excited for people to get to see it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the observation checklist sounds fascinating. Um, let's let's take a sample scene some place that you would go to sketch, maybe Central Park or somewhere. What would that observation checklist for you be and how would you go about checking those items? All right. So I'm going to I'm going to use Bethesda Terrace and Bethesda Fountain as an example here as something that I've sketched a whole mm -hmm. lot. <laughs> um so the fountain has water in it, so you're going to have a reflection. So I would then look 
okay, what is in the reflection that I can see above? Is it reflecting the sky? Is it reflecting the fountain itself? Is it reflecting the people walking around? And is that reflection lighter or darker than the thing that it's reflecting? Um, How do those compare to each other in terms of color and value? Um, And then looking, okay, where's the sun coming from? Where are the shadows going? Am I seeing cast shadows and where are they? Um, So those are kind of the big ones, but just going through and trying to get a lay of the land before I even start sketching is helpful, I find. Right, right. Now, uh, different watercolor artists that I've already spoken to, and of course, there are um, uh, hundreds of other methods also, but different artists, it appears to me, have their own ideas of like, while obeying the basic rules of watercolor that the physics you can't deny, they have their own approaches to how they go about filling up their page. So I know some artists who put down their first layer of colors, they wait for it to dry, then they put down another layer of colors. And then there are some who work in sections almost. So they complete one section and in all its details, and then they move to another section of the page. So in, in your example with the fountain there, and I'm I'm trying to think what I would do if I was there and I'm trying to work it with my watercolors, uh, what would you do? Would you start with the fountain? Would you start with the background? Where would you begin this drawing? I usually... So I'm someone who works layer by layer over the whole thing for the most part. So I'm not do, I'm not starting in a corner and doing finishing a tiny bit to completion and then fin- finishing a tiny bit to completion. I'm working on the whole thing at once. And in part possibly because that's also how you paint scenery that's really large. So I'm just used to painting things that way. So for something like that, I would look at what's the lightest color that I see and then painting as big of a section that color as I can. So if it's the sky, I'm painting in the whole sky that color and then moving on to something else. And I vary whether or not I'm painting wet into wet or dry into dry. I usually aim to work my way around a painting so that while something else is drying, I can be working on something else so that there's never time where I'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs, waiting for paint to dry. Um, I try to paint a little bit more efficiently so that I'm not just killing time. Um, And then I just like slowly figure out, okay, what's now the next lightest thing and recognize, okay, this color is going to have to sit on top of that color. So then how am I mixing it to go on top of that and just sort of slowly making that same choice all the way around for everything as I work it up, but going light to dark and figuring out how all of my edges need to interact with each other as I go. I think a lot about edges and how each shape is going to interact with everything else and which edge is going to be darker or lighter than the other as I'm working my way up. Yeah, yeah. And that's already such a fascinating insight on how you break down what you see in front of you. Because now uh, what you're saying about colors is exactly true. This is another dissociative feeling I had. So when I'm working in lines, I can think of one object as it's border appears to me and I can I can draw that 
And often I tell participants in my workshops and I tell people around me uh, who I'm drawing with that this is something I do very consciously that I try to not see the object as that object. I try to join different borders together and this helps me get a bit more flow in my line work. But in colors, you're already having to do that because you're not seeing an object in its isolation. You're seeing colors as they belong to each other. And the edges are sometimes the edges of objects, but often they're the edges of different color groups in your reality. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially when you have large shadows that are over, you know, huge swaths of what you're looking at, then suddenly everything is the shadow color and you maybe can't see individual objects as well. So there's a lot of figuring out what edges and details you can just ignore completely and what you actually want to include. Yeah. But um, now I'm, yeah. And I'm thinking of the, the, the purpose of this book. So light is such an important subject and I'm glad that your book is specifically about that. Uh, what are some common things that people don't understand about the presence of light in their watercolor work or any kind of art, like other, other kinds of artwork as well? Um, I think in part, specifically with urban sketching, it can be tough because the light does move on you. So you've started painting in one way, and then as you've worked, now the light is doing something different. So I'm hoping that this will help people kind of pick and be able to more easily finish a painting, keeping it consistent with how they started it versus what they're seeing in front of them just because I think that that is a common issue that we're all facing. I know that I've faced that a ton where, you know, the sun is setting while you're working and, oh, it was really bright when I started this and now it's nighttime. Um, And having that as kind of a common issue to be solved and... Yeah. Um, How how do you go about solving it? Like in your case, what's what's your trick for... For well, let's not let's not think of sunset itself because that really becomes quite difficult. But say you have clouds and things, and so you have shadows lengthening and shortening. What's some way that you make yourself stay on track with this? So in part, it's making sure that I observe things really well at the beginning before I start, or or conversely, hope that they change because they're if the lighting's not very good when I start hoping that it comes out and then just paying attention when the light's doing exactly what I want it to do and making sure in my mind to go, okay, I see where all of these shadows are and clocking it that way when you have the light so that you can then remember it later when you're going to paint it in can be really helpful. Um, But also just when you have a basic understanding of how light works, then being able to fill in the gaps when you you know, have some have something that comes and gets in your way or the light changes and it's not doing what you thought it was, being able to say, okay, because I know how light works, I can fake this so that it looks real to an observer. Right, right. And sometimes you can have, uh, what I usually, uh, what I often do with my lines is that instead of trying to always look at my scene to course correct, so to say, in case I'm drifting off, my perspective is going wrong. That can be quite challenging to always break down from what is in front of you and then uh, for the next object and then for the next object. So I focus on getting one thing 
uh, quote unquote correct, exactly right. And then I try to put things with respect to that. And I'm thinking how even working with shadows might be similar that if you have one kind of shadow for an object on one side of your page, that can be your reference for the light and the shadow playing out in the rest of your page. Is, is that a way to look at it? Absolutely. You can absolutely use like a portion of the painting that you've already finished as a guideline for then how to do the rest of it and knowing, okay, when the light was doing that, this was the color that I used for the shadow. So I'm going to just make the rest of the shadows that color too, even though now maybe they look vastly different with what the light is doing. Um, so just, yeah, keeping consistent with what you've already done is always a good, good way to go. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for, to put this book together, you've spoken to lots of different artists. You've approached them and I've been uh, watching your Instagram stories about you You share their work. Um, tell me about some of these artists. What what made you shortlist them? How did you like what made you decide that this was someone whose work you wanted in this book? It was a really long process. Um, I. It was tough because I wrote it entirely in the pandemic and I started it about 10 months ago. So a lot of it, especially when I first started finding people, things were very locked down pretty worldwide. So a lot of people who normally do urban sketching weren't necessarily urban sketching. So I had a handful of people that whose work I already knew who I thought, oh, I know of pieces that they've done that would be really good for this that I was able to reach out to. And then some of it was hours and hours of me scrolling through the Facebook groups and Instagram and finding artists that I liked and then scroll, trying to scroll back to see what their urban sketching work looked like because all of the stuff that they've done recently is from photos. So I ended up with a really wide combination of people, some who I already knew and some who I miraculously found whose work just happened to be really good for what I needed it to be but it was it was definitely a process and then reaching out to people I think I've ended up with 24 artists in the book but I probably reached out to more like 50 to 75 people um but then you have people who don't get back to you or who don't want their work to be featured which is absolutely fair um but so there, for every person that you see in the book, I would say that there's at least one other person that you're not seeing in the book that I talk to. Um, but it was nice because I did get to touch base with so many artists and a ton of people whose work I was already familiar with. And I got to have a little internal fangirl moment by reaching out to artists whose work I've admired for right. sometimes years and who I've been following for years and didn't know and and had never actually spoken to. So I definitely had some thrilling moments with a few people. And there were some people who are featured who we've been following each other on Instagram, but have never really talked outside of the odd Instagram comment on uh -huh. <laughs> either thing. So uh, tell me about some of these people that you've been excited to, you know, be able to get in touch with as because of this. So many. Um, I was very excited, um, Sherry, who I think you had on mm -hmm. um, your podcast already. I was very excited to, I had met her at one of the symposiums, but I hadn't taken any workshops with her or anything. So I was excited to reach out to her. And she, of course, also wrote one of the urban sketching handbooks. 
So I was very excited to get to touch base with her. Um, I'm like, I don't want to get anyone's names wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was not prepared for this question. Um, Bupinder Singh, I um, have been following him for ages and was he was one of the first people that I reached out to. So I was so excited. And Yang Hong Zong, same, same deal. I've been following him for years. And I was so excited that he let me use a few of his works because they're he always does such an amazing job with lighting. And Alex Hilkertz was also high on my list of people to to ask. And um, for some new people, um, Anita, who's, I'm sorry, her last name is currently escaping me, um, but she was a new find of mine where I had just found from scrolling through Facebook, or uh, rather Instagram tags, um, I found her work and it ended up being like, oh, these two are like exactly perfect for what I need. And sort of towards the end of the process when I was looking for very specific things and the same deal with um, Sue, whose work I also had just found specifically looking for something in um, for the part on transparent objects. And it just happened to show up in a Facebook um in a Facebook group that day and I saw it and I was like, Oh, please God, tell me that this is an actual urban sketch and tell me that I can put this <laughs> in the book. And she was so sweet. And she, um, she let me use that one. So it was definitely a great combination of both the things of me being very excited to fangirl out on people who I've been following and then some finding new artists who I really enjoy their work and being able to include it. Right. And this job of curation is, it's it's more difficult than people might think because you want to have variety, but you also want to, you want to, uh, you want to round out the topic. You don't want to leave something unsaid or unaddressed. So what? So uh, I guess what I want to know is uh, these uh, twenty four artists that you finally were you whittled down to partly because of uh, lack of choice and partly by carefully editing. Um, how how did you decide that this is going to do the job like what were some of the, what are some of the ways in which they are unique from each other um a lot of just different styles and a lot of different mediums but everyone having the shared commonality of paying attention to light in their work so i'd say i kind of consider them even though their work is vastly different i think that for my purpose, it was great that they all have the shared commonality. So I thought more about how everything was similar rather than how it was different. Um, so that's an interesting question to me because I haven't really thought about it as much. Um, mostly in style, I just, there's a lot of different styles in there. Um, and try, I was trying really hard for variety. And I think that I did pretty well with that. Everyone else can tell me maybe I'm wrong, but I was pleased with the level of variety in terms of style and medium um, that got in there. I'm trying to think of kind of ways that they're different, but all I see is that they all use light really well, and I was excited to use all of them. I was equally excited for everyone who let me use their work in the book. Um, I was I felt really lucky that so many people were willing to let me put their work in and felt really fortunate to be able to touch base with so many artists. It was a really unique and wonderful experience of being able to 
talk to artists all over the world for a specific purpose. Yeah. And and this uh, the book is now released. People can buy it now. Is that correct? Um, it's on pre-order right now. So it's being officially published December 14th, but you can pre-order from anywhere books are sold. So support your local indie bookstore, but it's also available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere that you would imagine books are, and you can pre-order it. So it'll show up in December as soon as it's published. Don't have to wait. <laughs> um, so I'm definitely recommending for everyone that if you're, if you know that you're going to buy the book, just pre-order it because you'll get it sooner than if you order it, even, you know, the day that it's published. Mm -hmm. All right. Wow. Well, uh, thank you so much, Katie. This was a lovely talk. I, I learned so many things and about the theater and the arts in the theater that I did not know about. Thank, thank you for sharing this. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think that now, I think for a lot of people, this is going to be the first time that they've heard me speak. And I think that now maybe the rambling part of rambling sketcher is going to make a little <laughs> bit more sense to people. <laughs> I was like, it does count for me wandering around while I sketch, but it's also because I really enjoy a good run-on sentence. And... <laughs>